Glad that you're able to be here today. And those that are visiting with us, we're especially glad that you're here. And uh, trust that you'll be blessed as we worship our Lord Jesus Christ together. And now we worship through the ministry of the Word. So turn with me to John chapter 3. For those visiting, we are in a verse-by-verse study of John 3. This morning we will be we'll be looking at verses Let me remind myself of the verses here. We'll be looking at verses uh, 6 through 8. And I'll read down through verse 8 starting at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. There was a a story, a fable, that I remember hearing as a kid. I think it's called the story of Chicken Little. It tells of a young merchant who was traveling along a road on his horse when he came upon a small fuzzy object lying in the road. He dismounted to look more closely and found a little chicken lying on its back with its scrawny legs pointing skyward. At first he thought the chicken was dead, but it proved to be very much alive on closer investigation. The young man asked the little chicken if it was all right. The chicken replied, yes. Then the merchant said, well, what are you doing lying here on your back in the middle of the road with your legs pointed to the sky? The chicken responded that he had heard a rumor that the sky was falling, so he was holding his legs up to support it. The merchant replied, surely you don't think that you can hold up the whole sky with those scrawny little legs, do you? And after a solemn look, the chicken replied, one does the best he can. Such is the theme of the passage that we see about Nicodemus and his understanding of salvation. Nicodemus in this chapter, is in the midst of a 
heavenly conversation with the Son of God, and he can only think earthly about it. But Nicodemus' understanding of these heavenly things is nil because he does not have the capacity to understand them. He has no spiritual life and therefore cannot appropriate the life that is required to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus has revealed that which the scriptures plainly teach to Nicodemus, that mankind must be born from above in order to be a part of God's family. Jesus revealed this. Jesus revealed that this birth that comes from heaven is accomplished through the word of God and the instrumentation of the Holy Spirit. This obviously was not enough for Nicodemus to understand what Jesus was talking about. I I can almost envision the perplexed look, the deer in the headlights sort of gaze as he's listening to the things that Jesus says but have no understanding of what they are. It's at this point that Jesus continues to clarify to Nicodemus that which he does not understand or cannot comprehend. We see that in verse 6. Jesus says to him with a third explanation, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now Jesus is speaking in plain human terms so that Nicodemus can make a comparison of the spiritual or the physical with the spiritual. There's a common saying that holds true in almost every case. And the saying is that like begets like. It speaks of the strong similarity between parents and their offspring. How many times have you heard? I remember years, a few years back when my mother was, was, was in a nursing home and we went to North Carolina to visit her and And we walked into the nursing home, and I walked up to the counter to ask where she was, and the nurse said, oh, I know who you are. You're Jane Snyder's son. I never met her. But she knew who I was because I looked just like my mom. Like begets like. And this similarity carries itself across into physical Life itself, where children look like their parents, and it goes on down the line. Sometimes even children will look like their grandparents. This saying is certainly true of parent and child, but it is also and especially true when speaking of the fallenness of the human race. Like begets like. Fallen men can only produce fallen Offspring. The only thing that the flesh can do is produce more flesh. 
Job 14 verse 4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? There is not one, he says. Not one. James speaks of fresh and salt water. Can fresh water be brought out of salt water? No. No. To further emphasize the spiritual nature of the new birth, Jesus compares it to physical birth. His statement further relates the truth that spiritual birth is not a work of the flesh. It in no way has any part in salvation. This was emphasized earlier in this gospel. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 12, John says, But all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, so believing is receiving, and vice versa, He gave them, He gave those people the right To become children of God. I'm glad he didn't stop there. Or we might think that that was off of our own initiative. But he didn't stop stop there. He says in verse 13. Who were born not of blood. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of man. But of God. This is all the work of God. There is no human effort in the new birth. It is completely a work of God. Jesus taught this many times. One of those passages, which I'm looking very much forward to getting to, is John chapter 6, verse 63. Jesus said this, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. So Jesus says to him, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. The word flesh is used many times in the scripture. And it has several different meanings depending upon the context of where it is used and how it is used in scripture. Here, the word means physical flesh or the body of flesh. This fleshly body that's covered with skin and muscle inside and all that it contains. This is the body of flesh. That which can be touched and felt. It refers to, also refers to the fallen man. The sinful flesh that is a part of our fallen nature to which, that we inherited from our forefathers going all the way back to Adam. Our physical flesh is how we appear. It's how we look from the outside. It's what people envision when, when they see us. Our fallen flesh is the unseen part of our nature that causes us To react in ungodly ways. These two are fused together. Romans chapter 5 verse 12. says therefore just as sin came into the world through one man. And death through sin. So death spread to all men for all sinned. 
No one is exempt. Everybody is a part of that lineage. Now, there are several terms in the New Testament that are synonymous with flesh, the word flesh. Some of those terms are the old man or our old nature. Sometimes it refers to the heart as the seat of sinful, the sinful person. Sometimes it's used, the words carnal or fleshly are used to call about or speak of the flesh in this sense. Sometimes the flesh is called the natural man. That which we are in our natural state, fallen, sinful. That means that every person that comes into the world is born dead spiritually. What a paradox. Born dead. And yet, that's the truth of it. That's the fallenness that we're speaking of. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, And you were dead in trespasses and sins. Dead in trespasses and sins. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The only way that a person can pass from the existence of death to the reality of life is through the new birth, which is a spiritual event. That's why Jesus said that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. So there's a comparison. We, we understand and we know physical birth. And what it produces, it produces a new life. It produces a new person in the form of a little baby. So spiritual life happens the same way through the Spirit. It produces a new spiritual being. A little baby spiritual being that has to learn just like little physical babies have to grow and learn. The scripture is full of these kinds of analogies. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that creates this new person by a spiritual birth and thereby making that person a new person in the spirit. It is the spirit of man that is regenerated. This body is not regenerated. This body continues to die until one day death will take it. But the, but the spirit inside that's born from the Holy Spirit, that's born from above, it never dies. It continues on. One day the promise is that it will have a new body to live in that's incorruptible and immortal that has the capacity to live in heaven with Christ. The spirit of man is regenerated and that which was dead is made alive. It is a miracle of God, this new birth. And in that moment that it takes place, 
We are translated from the, do, from the domination of Satan and his kingdom, which is a kingdom of darkness, into the domination of the Son of God and his kingdom, which is a kingdom of light. So just as opposite as physic, the physical is to the spiritual, that's how opposite our existence becomes as believers. From darkness to light. From sin to righteousness. From judgment to forgiveness. This is what God promised the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. When he was struck down by that light that he saw. He tells of it in Acts chapter 28. This is what he said. Jesus said to him. I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light. And from the power of Satan to God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by me. God had already promised that this would come to pass. He promised it in the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isaiah the prophet prophesied it as well. In Isaiah 35 and Isaiah 42. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Their eyes, the eyes of, uh, that are blind will be opened to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So we can say, That being born again, being born from above, is a divine work of the Holy Spirit, whereby He instantaneously communicates spiritual life to people who are dead in sin. This was astonishing news (coughs) to Nicodemus. It was astonishing because he did not know or understand the workings or the processes of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of men. So Jesus said to him, Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. In other words, if it were a question, he might have said, Why are you astonished at this? Do you not know the scriptures? The word must in verse 7 is a very strong word. It's the Greek word day. It means to be obligated to something or someone. Sometimes it's translated by the word should or ought, or you have to. It has with it connotations of this this obligation that you, you you have to carry out something. 
It's used in Matthew 18, verse 33, where Jesus said, And should you not, speaking of the servant who sent his fellow servant to prison. Remember, he was pardoned by the king. And he said, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? The king said to him. Should you not have? You had an obligation to forgive him. It's used in Matthew 23, where Jesus sends woes to the Pharisees. He says this, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you ought to have done. You were obligated to these things. And you didn't do them. It is used of the necessity of the crucifixion in John chapter 12, verse 34. It's used of John the Baptist when he said, I must decrease. Jesus must increase. There was an obligation. Jesus says, Nicodemus, why are you marveling that I say you are obligated to be born again? Without it, you cannot see God's kingdom or enter God's kingdom. And so Jesus, in other words, was emphasizing in the strongest possible terms the absolute necessity of the new birth. A thing that Nicodemus could never attain on his own or with his own self-righteous works. And you can't either. No matter how hard you try, no matter what good we do, no matter how religious we think we are, it cannot be attained apart from the new birth. Now, Jesus gives another explanation here in verse 8. And... It is an explanation that caused me this past week to fall in love with the Holy Spirit all over again. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So now Jesus is saying that the Holy Spirit is the worker of this new birth. Perhaps as they were sitting, talking or standing, talking during this nighttime visit, perhaps the wind stirred the leaves on a nearby tree or blew up a little puff of dust in the air. Jesus used the illustration of the wind to explain the activity of the Holy Spirit. It is a truth that is essential to all human beings. He tells of the importance of the work of the Spirit in salvation. And this salvation is in the hearts of men and you cannot see it. You can't look at a person and and say, oh, there it is. But you can see the effects of it. 
as it moves and lives in their lives. Just like seeing the wind blowing the leaves or moving the snow sideways or blowing the dust up from the fields. So Jesus draws a comparison between the Spirit and the wind. And it is a double comparison. Double because both the wind and the Spirit are sovereign in their activity. Sovereign in their activity. We'll explain these in a moment. Second... They are both mysterious in their activity. Have you ever tried to explain the wind? You can't explain it. Because you don't know where it comes from. You don't know what it's going to do. It does what it does. We've certainly had evidence of that over this Weekend, have we not, in our southern states? The comparison is found in the words, so is it, or so it is, in verse 8. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So let me give you some comparisons of wind and spirit that will help us understand the work of the Spirit as we relate it to God's salvation. There are many parts to this truth. So first of all, the wind is irresponsible. Irresponsible. Notice that he says it blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it wants to blow. Now, of course, we know that all of creation, all the universe is controlled by God himself. We'll see that here in a moment. But the wind does what it wants to do. It does what it does. The movement of the wind is a sovereign act from heaven. I want you to think about that for a second. Because there is not one puff of wind, not one blowing of wind, not one storm that's made of wind that does not come from heaven. It all comes from the hand of God. It is completely out of the control of men. No one can control the movements of the wind. It can be harnessed. It can be used. But it can't be controlled. Just so, no one controls the movement of God's Spirit. God's Spirit does what God wills. And no one controls it. Proverbs verse 30 verse 4 says, who has gathered the wind in his fist? It's a rhetorical question. No one. You can't control the wind. Neither can I. 
No more than we can control what the weather does. God controls it and he is not held. Get this now. It's very important. God controls the wind and he is not held responsible for what it does. Did you get that? This is a hard concept for many people. Because it blows when and where and as it pleases him. Scriptures speak to this. Psalm 78 verse 26. He causes the east wind to blow in the heavens. And by his power he led out the south wind. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship was threatened to break up. Psalm 147 verse 18. He makes his wind blow and his waters flow. So it is with the Spirit of God. God's Spirit blows into the lives of those whom God chooses. And He is not held responsible for blowing elsewhere. Or not blowing elsewhere. We don't know who those people are that He will Blow into their lives. But we do know that he does do this. There is one other correlation to make here. With the sovereignty of God and the wind. It's found in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6. All we like sheep. Nope, that's a different verse. Isaiah 64, verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, get this, like the wind, take us away. In this passage, our sin is likened to the wind. It sweeps over us and it completely ruins us for God's kingdom. But God is greater than our sin. And His grace superabounds with His the wind of the Spirit driving our sin far from us. To the degree... That it will never return. Romans chapter 5 verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Or super abounded. This is God's spirit. This is the wind of the spirit. You remember when the disciples were in the upper room waiting What happened? A great rushing wind came. And they were all filled with the Spirit. God's wind blows where God wants it to blow. God's Spirit moves where God wills it to move. 
and he is not held irresponsible for its movement. Number two, the wind is irresistible. When it blows in its full power, nothing can resist it. On April the 3rd, 1996, Cyclone Olivia hit the northern coast of Australia on Barrow Island. It intensified for two days, setting in one place, intensified for two days, and on the 10th of April, it hit Barrow Island with the strongest wind speed ever recorded by any storm on earth. Recorded at 254 miles per hour with wind gusts sustained at 197 miles per hour for more than 10 minutes. It leveled the island, amazingly only killing one person, causing in that day $54 million worth of damage on that one island. Sometimes the wind can be ferocious and fierce and destructive. A force that conquers and devastates everything in its path. Likewise, God's Spirit, when He chooses to work on the hearts of people, can break the most stubborn pride. It can shatter the hardest heart. And it can overcome the most rebellious will. It is irresistible. Is not my word like a fire, God says, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces? When the Spirit of God takes the word of God to the hearts of men, He works as nothing else can. Number three, the wind is irregular. The wind is irregular. Sometimes it can be a gentle breeze that soothes. And other times it can be something that we flee from in fear. The Holy Spirit works almost imperceptibly from our vantage point many times. We can't see the inner workings of the Spirit in the lives of those where He is blowing His wind. But nonetheless, it's there. We don't know just what he will do to bring new life to those whom he chooses, only to say that it will always be in connection with the word of God. Always in connection with the word. His actions are radical and revolutionary. The disciples waiting on the day of Pentecost heard that mighty wind blowing And that wind blew and that day they preached and 3,000 plus people were saved. At other times, the gospel is preached and it seems as though the wind doesn't blow hardly at all. It's irregular. Sometimes it's one or two. Other times it's multitude. Fourth, 
The wind is invisible. The wind is invisible. There aren't very many things that exist in nature that are invisible. We can see the other members of nature. We can see the mass of the earth, the plants. We can see light. But you can't see the wind. It's invisible. We know it's there because we can hear it, or we can feel it, or we can see its effects. But we don't see it. We see rain and snow, rainbows and other parts of creation, the flashes of lightning. We can feel the rumble of the claps of thunder. But the wind cannot be seen. And so it is with God's spirit. God is spirit. And the only way he can be seen is through the eyes of faith. The Spirit is the unseen person of the Godhead. God is Spirit, according to John 4.24. No one has ever seen God, John 1.18. He is invisible. Fifth, the wind is inscrutable. By that, I mean that it cannot be explained. No one knows where the wind comes from. Oh, we can say, well, we have a north wind. It's blowing out of the north. But where did that come from? No one knows. Does it just, did God start it at the creation and have it spinning around the world since that day? Or does he create the winds that he wants to send around the world in various places and in various ways? No one knows. It defies human comprehension. The nature of the wind is unexplainable in its origin. So it is with the Spirit. The workings of the Spirit are without interpretation or justification. No one can explain God's Spirit or why God does what He does. God tells us that he does certain things and he does them for certain reasons. But beyond that, we have no information. He needs no commentary on what he does. Apart from his word, we would not know anything that he does or anything about him. He has chosen to reveal himself Through the lives of fallen people. And show himself strong that way. He reveals himself through his word. And he is unexplainable. He's inscrutable. Last of all. The wind. Is indispensable and invigorating. Now I saved I thought these two should go together and not apart. Because 
The Spirit of God is essential to the spiritual life of any individual whom He saves. The Scriptures tell us that when we're saved, the Spirit of God enters our lives, placing us in Christ and Christ in us. And so He lives within us. Our bodies are the temple of the Spirit. We, we walk around with the Spirit of God living in us. And so in that sense, He is indispensable to our life as Christians and our life before God. But He is also invigorating. It's the Spirit that renews us. It's the Spirit that convicts us. It's the Spirit that reminds us of the things of God. It's the Spirit that, that causes us to remember what God teaches us and brings to our memory. Without the wind, the earth would be essentially barren. But the Spirit moves in such a vital way, bringing, like the wind, bringing new life to us, invigorating us. So without the Spirit, we would not have any life and would be immediately or ultimately walking dead men and women, which is what we were before salvation. We would wander aimlessly through this life having no real purpose for which we were created. But the Spirit strengthens us with His own life and His own power so that we are energized to live in that power. He's indispensable and invigorating. I found this quote by Arthur Pink. I think it sums up what Jesus is saying here in the first, uh, first eight verses of this passage. <clears throat> God has thrown an imperceptible veil over the beginnings and processes of life. Can't see it? It's there. He's got his hand on it. That we live, we know. But how we live, we cannot tell. Life is evident to the consciousness and manifest to the senses. But it is profoundly mysterious. It still is. People today are still asking the question. Do I exist? And if I exist, why? So it is with the new life born of the Spirit. There is the fact. There is the evidence of the fact. And there is the mystery behind the fact. The one born again knows that he has new life and enjoys the evidences of that new life. But how the Holy Spirit operates upon the soul, subdues the will, creates the new life within us, belongs to the deep things of God. These are the things men have pondered. For thousands of years. And the only thing you can come back to. With any kind of assurance at all. Is this. 
So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We are what we are by the grace of God, through the working of the Spirit of God, and we would not be anything without Him. We would have no hope, but we do have hope. Because like the wind, God's Spirit one day blew in upon our lives, brought the Word of God to us, and opened our hearts to react and be able to react to that Word, and we were born again from heaven. Because of that, the Spirit of God who now dwells within us gives us assurance that we are the children of God. Not because of anything we did, but because of everything that He did. And that's the truth of this passage that Jesus wanted to get across to Nicodemus. And that He wants to get across to everyone who hears it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day and for the word that you have given us. We pray that you would be glorified through it. We worship you by the preaching of your word and by the singing of songs and hymns and spiritual songs and by the giving and by our prayers. Lord, we worship you today. And we pray that you would be pleased with our worship this morning. We love you and we, our desire is to live for you and to be zealous for you. That we might be a people that would show forth the mercy that you have extended to us. And the grace that you have given to us. That we might walk in your ways and be a people of good works. We thank you for this. In Jesus name. Amen.